that's why this thing about I'm saving myself for my husband that's like being vulgar selectively that's, that's not getting to the definition of intimacy you don't save yourself for your husband because your husband has no privileges he is there because you trust him like the Kayangadu to not become familiar to respect the sanctity which is the opposite of a rapist who already feels familiar and that's what makes it so exciting in fact the definition of love one of the definitions of love <clears throat> like um, what is the difference between love and pleasure pleasure is experienced only up close love is experienced from a distance which means the nature of love the, 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 the function of love is that it reaches across a distance to bring distant things together that's why absence can make the heart grow fonder because distance is what love thrives on because love means reaching across a distance and that's why you can't marry your sister or your brother because there's no distance there has to be a distance now the distance of course shouldn't be the ocean necessarily the distance is simply the fact that you're strangers and that you're male and female and the love is that reaching the emotional reaching that that reaches across bridges the distance and connects the two people and since we're supposed to love each other forever it means that no matter how much we continue to reach across that distance it'll never be closed will never become brother and sister it will always there will always be a distance that we will need to reach across and the deeper we get with each other the better we get to know each other the more we discover new distances that need to be reached across and that's why sometimes people get into fights in order to make up because things are getting too comfortable and there's no reaching necessary there's no bridging necessary so they create a fight and then they reach across that distance in order to but if there's a privacy if there's a, a separation of the bed then the love is always active because it's always reaching across a distance pleasure on the other hand does not thrive on distance when the object of your pleasure is not available there is no pleasure there's pain so absence uh, does not make the pleasure greater love is an attraction the distance doesn't cause pain the distance causes the desire to bridge the gap whereas the absence of pleasure is pain and that's why when a person feels that he has bridged the gap then his love is satisfied but pleasure is never satisfied 
Because when should it be? When you have what's pleasurable? That's when pleasure begins. <laughs> so when will it end? It doesn't end. It's a bottomless pit. In other words, to want to bridge the distance, there has to be an attraction. So love means an attraction across a distance. If the attraction is gone, then there's just distance. Or, if they've become so familiar with each other that there is nothing to reach across, so the love becomes inactive. So it has, not, has no function. So this this romantic notion, uh, you know, we'll get ma- I'm going to get married, and when I'm married, there will be somebody in my life on whom I can dump everything. No, not so. When you get married, there's someone in your life with whom you have to be more modest than with anybody else. What is that term? Um, in movies, there are times when there are this, there's, there's sex in a movie or violence in a movie that is, what is the word, um, unnecessary for no reason. Huh? You know, I think gratuitous is Huh? It's a common expression. It's a, I'm blank on that. But that's what I'm that's what I mean. Everybody agrees that gratuitous sex is is distasteful. It's inappropriate. It's also inappropriate in a marriage. That a husband and wife should not be intimate gratuitously. It should be the real thing or nothing. But not... <laughs> that word bugs me. It's such a good word. No, the, word, the one I'm looking for. The, uh, yeah. Couple, a couple of days ago, that with Hasidim, everything is upside down. That a religious person worries about sinning. A chassid worries about mitzvahs. Uh, a regular person worries about being wrong. A chassid worries about being right. Uh, uh, religious people worry about... Uh, about... good and evil. A chassid worries about a relationship. Well, here also, a, a religious person worries about the two weeks when they're not supposed to be touching. To be careful, to be sure, to be... A chassid worries about the two weeks when they are touching. That that should be careful. That should be appropriate. That should be right. So, particularly if, uh, if the wife is pregnant half the time, so there is no separation, physical separation. That's when you have to really be a mensch. It's almost easy. Don't touch, don't touch. All right, fine. But when you are being intimate, that's when you need to be a mensch. And that's the fact that there are two weeks when you're not allowed to touch each other is 
one aspect or one expression of the fact that you do not own the other person's intimacy. But you have to be conscious of that when you are touching each other. Not enough to just have those two weeks. When we're over, when we're, our imaginations are overactive and we put so much mental energy into our sexuality that it overwhelms the sex itself. Um, and when, when, when the intimacy itself is no longer exciting or, or enough and we start looking for other gimmicks then something's wrong something's wrong it is supposed to be pleasurable and exciting and if it's not then don't look for other things fix it fix it but um, conventional wisdom keeps telling us well try this try that do a little of this do a little of that If you need a little of this and a little of that, something's wrong. You were saying the other day, uh, you teach a child not to be too picky with his food, because if he's too picky with his food, he's like getting too picky with his sex. And who knows what that leads to. If food isn't good enough, then what is? So if you know, if you can't have a steak and enjoy it, and what's the difference if you put a little green on the side and you put a little thing in the middle? Who are you kidding? It's still meat. So either you enjoy it or you don't. And the same is true with our sexuality. We start having to play around. We have to wear this little outfit and wear this little thing and turn the candle lights. And what, what is that? What is that? What happened to the sex teenagers used to enjoy? Without shtick, without gimmicks, without... familiar so now you got to look for something unfamiliar that is artificial it only works if you understand it if you understand the separation you understand that you can't touch each other for two weeks because you have no rights to each other then it works but if you feel that you do have a right but God interferes and messes up your private life, then you'll resent the mikvah, you'll resent the nida, and when you're together, you certainly won't be careful. Respectful. So that's why I'm saying, if a person asks, God is going to tell me how to behave in my bedroom? You got that wrong. It's not your bedroom. It's a, the orientation towards this whole thing has to be a correct one. If you feel that you're entitled to each other's intimacy, but for some reason you can't have it for the next two weeks, then then it grates on you. It doesn't it doesn't ennoble your life. It it makes you miserable, and eventually you will start taking liberties because I mean you can't. This is yours. What do you mean I can't have it? it happens quite often a woman goes off to a shear or to a study session and she comes back inspired to keep mikvah and she comes home to her husband and she says don't touch me <laughs> <laughs> huh? 
And he says, what? She says, you're not touching me for the next two weeks. He says, what is this? She says, oh, I read, I heard this, that, and the other. I'm waiting two weeks, then I'll go to the mikvah, and then it'll be read over there. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. I don't agree. I don't want this. So she says, don't be an animal. What? Now I'm an animal? What happened here? She goes away to a shear, she comes back, he's an animal. <laughs> you can wait two weeks, don't be such an animal. Excuse me. We used to be animals together. What happened all of a sudden? <laughs> That's not the way it's meant to be. Because then he feels, you can't do this. You can't do this to me. I have my right. <laughs> he says, no, you're an animal. Is that what animal rights are all something so sacred and then Christianity comes along and turns it into a sin and then secular society comes along and turns it into recreational fun and then from all of it we're dysfunctional we end up with nothing teeth in front of each other. You don't get them dressed or dressed or shower in front of each other either. Yeah, you don't... Uh, gratuitous nudity is not acceptable at home either. The spouse is no different than anybody else. The you that is you is only you, not you and him. Of course there's a difference between your husband and a stranger. Right, right. But when, we, but when it comes to the definition of intimate, then, then the Kayin Gadol is not any different than anybody else. Although he's the one who's supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. But does he belong there? Not any more than anybody else. So the same is true with intimacy in, in a marriage. The part of you that is not shareable is not shareable even with a husband. So when it's Yom Kippur and you're being intimate, Yom Kippur so to speak, and you're being intimate, then you're being intimate. But it, it is not his any more than it is anybody else's. And therefore, when you're not being intimate, he has no privileges or no rights or no, um, no 
excuse for being in your intimate life any more than anybody else. So if the Kayan Gadol wants to, uh, on some other day other than Yom Kippur, wants to just go in and check out what's going on in there, he can't. <clears throat> so here you have, on the one hand, when a husband and wife are being intimate, they have to be completely naked, they're not allowed to be wearing anything. But when they're not being intimate, then they're not allowed to dress in front of each other. Undress in front of each other. Because then it's gratuitous. I'm not a rabbi. <laughs> that this woman gave birth to seven uh, Kohanim Gedolim because she never uncovered her hair. Because she never uncovered her hair. Even to her, even to the Kohanim Gedolim. <laughs> Maybe they were impeached. I don't know. But but the, the virtue was that the beams of her house never saw her hair. Never mind her husband. So, you know, what kind of virtue is that? I mean, if there's nobody around, not even your husband, what's the virtue? Well, if there's nobody around except your husband, what's the virtue? The idea is that modesty is modesty. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It has to do with you being yourself. Keeping yourself to yourself. Not from others. You know, you tell, you tell little girls to be modest, you know, to sit modestly and so on. And so you say to the little girl, oh, you're not sitting modest. She said, no, boy. What? Who put that idea in your head? That's so vulgar. We're talking modest, not filthy. No boys. What do you know from boys? What's boys got to do with it? as they get older but uh, no, I think if we were to be very graphic about the whole thing what is intimacy? does intimacy involve the eye? does intimacy involve the ears? is it something you see? is it something you hear? it's not so, no distractions. Again, let's go back to the food. You know, if you set out a, ta- a, a plate uh, tastefully, you know, and you decorate the dessert, you know, like a... Are you eating with your eyes? Are your eyes now involved in eating? Shouldn't it be just your mouth? So if you're eating with your eyes, then, then, then your mouth is, is being cheated out of something. 
or your stomach or something. If you're if you're being intimate with your eyes, that's that's a different that's a different experience. It's a different thing. It doesn't belong. It's like voyeurism. It's got its own attraction or pleasure or whatever, but it's not not the same thing as telling me how to run my life. What's with all these commandments? God is telling me how to run my life. And then you get into a big argument. Yes, God has the right to tell you how to run your life after all, because he's the boy, you know, it's his football, so you have to play it his way, otherwise he'll punish you and you'll go to hell. Okay, fine. Fine, he's beating me up and I have to do what he wants. The question is incorrect to begin with. It's not true that God is telling you what to do with your life. It's not your life. Who made it yours? The fact that God gave it to you? That doesn't mean it's yours. The Cain Gadol goes into the Holy of Holies. It's not his place. Just because you're there doesn't mean you belong there. Just because you have something doesn't mean it's yours. So the person says, who's going to kill himself? He says, what do we have? Plenty of business, my life. No, it's not. That's what we meant when we used to say life is sacred. Sanctity of life. What does that mean, sanctity of life? It means it's not yours. You may have it, but you can't own it. It's not yours. Never will be. Not even a tiny bit. Or when it's my body. It's my body. No, it's not. <laughs> How about, they're my children, I can do what I want. No, you can't. They're not your children. And then, of course, you're my wife, you do what I say. <laughs> Excuse me. Of course, we use that expression, my children, my wife, my life, my body, but we don't mean it in the possessive. For that, you can die. That's an inappropriate thought. They're not your children in the sense that you own them or can do what you want with them. It's not so. They're only yours in terms of responsibility. You are responsible for them. Other than that, they don't belong to you. Just like your life doesn't belong to you, so you can't end it when you choose. And your body doesn't belong to you, and that's why you can't damage it, just because you're in a bad mood. And your husband and wife are certainly not possessions, and certainly not in the bedroom. A bedroom has to be sacred. There are people who are really sensitive about the sanctity of, of intimacy and so on. They build a new house, they redecorate the house, and they invite all their friends over and they give them a tour, but not the bedroom. Don't take people into a bedroom. It's too private. And sometimes you go, you know, and somebody asks you to come into the bedroom and see how they decorate, and, and you feel uncomfortable. You don't want to go into a bedroom. It's private.
even between each other. And certainly, it doesn't. It's not uh, open to strangers or to tourists. <laughs> a guided tour through the bedroom. Not Not secret, sacred, sacred, holy. So you know there was in the in the olden days, maybe today even in the aristocracy among the uh, royalty, the king had his room bedroom, and the queen had her bedroom. I don't know if they ever had separate kitchens or separate living rooms, but they had separate bedrooms. Because I don't know if that's why, but the idea behind it is so powerful. Intimacy means you're about to enter the other person's private space. Now that becomes so strongly uh, evident when you have to knock on the door. So the king goes to the and knocks on the door. I mean that. That's powerful intimacy. This is her room. And he knocks on the door. And after they've been intimate, it's still her room. He goes back to his room. There's no violation here. Now, of course, most people couldn't afford two bedrooms. Most people in the olden days, their bedroom was part of their kitchen. Certainly have, couldn't have two bedrooms. But in Jewish tradition, you had two beds. His and hers. So when they're intimate, it's not a confusion of, of space. It's his space and her space. And when you're intimate, you're entering another's space. That's very powerful. And it's very appropriate to what human sexuality really is. So the lifestyle that we live, the behavior, the habits that we have, have to reflect and support the nature of intimacy. And we don't do that. We don't do anything to support the intimacy of, of what is intimate. We abuse it. And then we wonder, where did the intimacy go? So the secret of it is, be familiar in every other area of your lives, but not in the bedroom. And that's what the laws of modesty are all about. The laws of modesty basically say, if it's intimate, then it should be in the bedroom. That's, that's what it means. It's not saying don't sin in the streets. It's saying there should be no intimacy when it isn't appropriate, when it isn't um, correct. Because intimacy is sacred, and if you, if you mess with it, you lose it. And that's not a religious concept. That's the way God created us. That's the nature of things. And that's why another 60 years of bombardment from the, from the media is not going to change anything. Because it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. You can't.
Now, every, every theory has to be tested. The test of this theory is, if a person has not treated intimacy with any amount of sanctity, if we have been careless and, and too familiar and so on and so forth, how is it repaired? Can it be repaired? All, all therapy, all sex therapists um, advising dysfunctional, sexually dysfunctional couples start their treatment with a common, a common uh, piece of advice. They all use it, whether Masters and Johnson, they, all of them. Beginning of therapy for dysfunctional couples, don't touch each other for two weeks. Then they send you a bill. That piece of advice costs you $150. Now, it doesn't make any sense. The couple are suffering from sexual dysfunction, which means they don't like to touch each other. So they come for therapy. They say, "What should we do about this? We 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 don't we're not we don't we're not attracted to each other. We don't want to touch each other." So the therapist says, "Don't touch each other for two weeks. One hundred and fifty dollars." And this is supposed to work. That's the problem, not the solution. It works. It's by the way, it's probably the only part of the therapy that does work. After that, it's downhill. It works. It's powerful. Why does that work? Because human sexuality is sacred. It's not that we would like it to be. It really is. So if you've neglected it for 40 years, it doesn't stop being sacred. Start treating it with sanctity, and it's sacred, as always. Is the best proof. Two weeks of not touching each other undoes all the damage of years of careless familiarity. Actually, I have an very interesting little experience. There was a young couple in Minnesota who uh, had the, the, the couple themselves had become observant and uh, traditional and their families were not. So when they planning their, their wedding, there was all sorts of grief because they wanted to have separate seating and they wanted to have the traditional chuppah and they wanted, and the parents were just freaking out about this whole thing. But the kids, it was their wedding and they were going to have it their way. So I'm sitting there at the meal in the men's section and there's this long curtain along this, you know, down the middle of the room and the women are on the other side and men are on the other side. And I'm sitting with a group of men and they're grumbling and they're can't talk with your own, can't sit with your own wife. What kind of business? I've never heard of that. Ridiculous. Man can't sit with his own wife. <laughs> After the first course, I look up and there's nobody at the table. All the men are lined up on the men's side of the curtain. The women are lined up on the women's side of the curtain and they're speaking to each other over the pizza. <laughs> so when these guys came back to the table, I said to them, uh, isn't, isn't that amazing? If your wives were sitting right here, would you be talking to them? 
No, you'd be talking to each other. But because there's a mechitza, all of a sudden you have something to say to your wife. That's great. It's something we don't do. And as soon as you start treating it that way, it's real. It's, it's, it's powerful. And again, it's not that, you know, if you don't let me, then I want to. It's not you don't let. It's true. It's something we don't do. So, it would be very nice if we could all be that elderly couple 40 years from now, still blushing with each other, still a little bit bashful with each other, which means we have not grown familiar where where you're not supposed to be familiar. <laughs> so I made this speech for a group of, of completely non-observant, you know, uh, non, non-traditional, and some guy raises his hand and he says, you know, I understand what you're saying, but if you follow that logic, it's probably better to leave the lights off when you're being intimate. I said, I think you're catching on. <laughs> I think you're catching on. Yeah. There's a, there's a law, in, there's a law in, in, in Torah that a man is obligated to be intimate with his wife. It's uh, regularly. A woman is obligated to be intimate with her husband. <clears throat> she can't refuse sex as a punishment or whatever. So now, if a man were to say, what do you mean, it's not mine? It is mine. She's obligated to be intimate with me. I have a right to her intimacy. That's horrible. <laughs> that's, that's like the poor man who knocks on the wealthy man's door and says, where's my money? I have your money? Yeah, yeah. You have to give me charity. Hand it over. You're obligated. <laughs> you throw them out of the house. It's my obligation, not your money. So the same is true with this. The man who says, my wife belongs to me because she's obligated to, or my husband must... That's their obligation. Now, whether they want to fulfill their obligation is up to them. It does not belong to you. And that's the familiarity I'm talking about. You don't own it. Not even a tiny bit. And never will. That's why I'm saying that yet, even after 50 years of marriage, you knock on the door. The king has to knock on the... He can't just walk in there. It's her room. That's once. You know that joke? That's once. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> no, she can't force her husband. She can divorce him. If he refuses to be intimate with her, she can divorce him. But she can't force him to be intimate. And then they got an ugly fight on their hands. 
So we take a look at some of the laws of intimacy between husband and wife. And again, we find such contrast, such stark uh, differences between conventional, popular wisdom and, and, and Jewish wisdom. A husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate if one or both are intoxicated. A husband is not allowed to be intimate with his wife if she's half asleep. A husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate if they're thinking about somebody else. I mean, even Shmuley Bateach says that fantasizing is okay. But it's not. It's not. It's terrible. King David says, I was, I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin or something like that. And the commentaries say, what, is, what did that mean? David's, David's parents were tzaddikim. What do you mean they were, he was conceived in sin? So the Gemara says that uh, David's father, Yishai, had two wives, which was common in those days. And the night that David was conceived by his mother, David thought he was sleeping with the other wife. Yishai thought that he was sleeping with the other wife. And because of that thought, David felt damaged, conceived in iniquity, if iniquity is the right translation of the word. So a husband and wife may not be intimate if they're thinking about somebody else, particularly the man. Husband and wife may not be intimate. In fact, they're not allowed to live in the same house if they're planning to get divorced. Because in their hearts, they're already divorced. So they're not allowed to live in the same house because they might be intimate and they might conceive and the child will be a very bothered child. Husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate with the lights on. Husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate with clothing on. That's very different from conventional wisdom. But at the heart, at the core of the difference of approach is whether in fact Human sexuality is something we do, or is it something we don't do? And then everything follows from that. And that's what we have to tune our minds to. We've got to get that set and tuned properly. This is something we don't do. It's not that God said not to. 
it's something we don't do and God surprised us all and said do it Kayan wasn't surprised when he was told not to come into the Holy of Holies. He was shocked when he was told that on Yom Kippur he should come into the Holy of Holies. Of course, it would be helpful to introduce sanctity in other areas of life as well, and that it shouldn't be limited to the bedroom. It's very hard to suddenly appreciate sanctity in the bedroom when nothing else in life is sacred. So, if Shabbos becomes a sacred day, if the Torah is, you know, the holy books are in the house and they are the sacred books, and there's a mezuzah on the door which is sacred, and so on and so forth, then we become a little more familiar and a little better at uh, knowing how to handle and treat that which is sacred. But if nothing else, the sanctity of the bedroom can make our lives heavenly. There's a strange medrash. There are many strange medrashim that need a lot of commentary. But this one um, says that in the temple that Solomon built, the, uh, the building was one story. But over the Holy of Holies, he built an attic. And the purpose of the attic was that if something in the Holy of Holies needed to be fixed or repaired, like the masonry, how, do you, how, how does the, uh, the worker, how does the maintenance man go into the Holy of Holies? So they built this room over the Holy of Holies, which contained a, um, an elevator car, a big box that uh, worked with pulleys, and wherever the damage of the, of the wall was, they would, they would set this box with the worker inside uh, f facing the wall that needs repair, and they would lower it to where the crack was, and the guy would work on it. He would be enclosed from five sides, you know, open only to the wall that needs the repair. And he would do his repair, and they would haul him up. So the purpose of the attic was to lower the worker into the room in order to repair the Holy of Holies. Repair the Holy of Holies. Now, the med this, is, this is not shocking medrash. What was in, what's very surprising in the Medrash is, the Medrash says that that room, that attic, was called the bedroom. With no apparent reason. There were no beds there. Nobody slept there. The room above the Holy of Holies, which can repair the Holy of Holies, is called the bedroom. <laughs> 